we're beginning a series uh, on Hebrews 11, that many of you know is the faith chapter. And we're going to begin in chapter 10 with the lead-in, and we may drift into chapter 12 in some of the follow-up of chapter 11 in, uh, of, of Hebrews. Always, any, our whole life is centered around faith. That's faith, love, and hope are, are just bound up in everything that we do. And so this is pushing into one area of that. But as we'll see, faith and love and faith and hope are intricately connected. Um, you only have to think of Galatians 5 where Paul describes it this way, faith working through love or faith manifesting itself in love. So faith will issue in love. And then we'll see at the beginning of uh, Hebrews 11 that faith is described in terms of hope. That is the substance of things hoped for. So these are intricately connected. So by touching on the one aspect of faith, we're really touching on all aspects of our Christian lives. But we begin in chapter 10, and this passage we have considered uh, as part of some teaching on a Sunday night, but I felt like we had to give a full weight to this as it is the doorway into chapter 11 of Hebrews. So, it's page one of, uh, 1007, if you want to use the Pew Bible, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Thus the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Lord, open up our hearts. For we know that you alone are the source of faith the source of hope and love, any grace that we might have, anything that we might do good at all. For as you said, Jesus, apart from me, you can do no good thing, including believe. And so, Lord, we ask for your spirit to open up this passage, to draw us into the teaching of the writer of Hebrews, and, Lord, to live out this word in our lives. Bless us, Lord, for your glory and honor, we pray. Amen. Kids, I have uh, four words this morning. Two of them kind of come close together, but <clears throat> theater, right? 
you know the word theater, then money belt, money belt, then treasure, and finally body. So theater, money belt, treasure, body. Now this passage is interesting because it's taken up, the two primary words here occur also in the first of chapter 12, which means that 11 is kind of an extended talk or not a side, uh, not, not a side view because it's the main thing he's talking about, but it does show that 10 enters into 11 and 12 comes back out of 11 very specifically. So, you have in verse 32 the word endure, and then later in verse 36 you have the word endurance. Then when you get to chapter 12, you have the word endurance in verse 1 and endure in verse 2. So, endure, endurance, endurance, endure. There's a, as they call it, a chiasm where you have the outside elements are similar and the inside elements are similar. But it does show that in Paul's thinking, this is the front porch, and then this is the back uh, exit of this, and follows. And it does help us also to realize everything is about how faith enables us to keep enduring in obeying God and loving other people. Faith enables us to continue moving in God's will to love God and to love other people. So he says here in verse two, uh, 32, you uh, shortly after you were converted, which it means uh, enlightened there, we don't know exactly how long ago this was, um, but this is the recall portion of the sermon and then we'll get to the reclaim part uh, later. But the recall uh, portion begins with the fact that you endured a hard struggle, uh, the struggle uh, contending for a prize in the Olympic Games is how this is used also. Uh, the word contest is used, or it can translate this, and it shows that they are contending for something, this hard struggle or contest or contending uh, with sufferings. It's basically picturing an ancient battle situation, you know, back when it's hand to hand and you're hacking on each other with swords and spears and knives uh, and, and bare hands. And the idea is that you don't flee the battlefield, even though you're in the most dangerous situation and your army could possibly be vanquished as you're there on the battlefield, but you don't run, you stay there and you fight. And you don't just stand there and say, well, at least I'm here, right? <laughs> That's not a possibility. You're standing there and you're fighting and you're moving forward if possible. You're defending one another and you're attacking the enemy. Uh, you get the idea of this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 and 10, when Paul commends the Thessalonians and says, you don't really have any need of, of anyone to teach you about loving one another because your love is spread throughout all of the Macedonian area. But he said, still, I urge you to love more and more. So 
Enduring is not standing still. Enduring is to keep moving out, to abound and increase in love, to, to move forward and spread out and multiply and flourish like a little patch of wildflowers that's put in one corner of a field, and then years later it's spread all over the mountain uh, side with pinks and reds and oranges and yellows. That's what Paul means by endure, to flourish in the midst of terrible resistance, danger, even imprisonment and death. This word uh, to endure also has an element of waiting in it as well. Like Psalm 130 verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits in his word, I hope. There's the idea of depending on a promise and waiting for him to fulfill that promise. Or Psalm 33, 20, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. And one of my favorite verses in Scripture that describes our whole life before God, he says, it's Psalm 64, 4, I'm, I'm sorry, Isaiah 64, 4, from old, no one is heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Who ever heard of God like that? His business, his task, his, his calling, so to speak, as God is to act for us who wait for him and trust in him. Like, I will be your committed servant God to benefit you for your whole of your life. I will act for you as you wait for me to do so. So this waiting, of course, has a focus on the Lord. It centers upon Christ. We're waiting on him. We want him so that as we fight, we wait. As we continue to love one another and love God and move forward as a church, we wait also for God to deliver us in whatever ways we need delivering. It's like soldiers knowing that reinforcements are on their way. Victory is assured, and so they just need to stand their ground, fight, and wait, because God is coming. He's always coming for his people. He's always coming to deliver us. And then in the final day, there'll be the great deliverance, of course. And I, I've, another passage that's always been precious to me, you know, it really shouldn't say that because you're like, well, what part's not precious to you, Darwin? You know, in the Bible, it's all gold, right? It's all gold. So pardon me when I just, I'm just expressing emotion here. But First uh, Thessalonians, Paul is describing uh, how, how the gospel came to the Thessalonians. And he said, I, I know how, how powerful the spirit was in your life because you turned from idols to serve the living God and to wait for his son from heaven who was raised from the dead and is going to deliver us from the wrath to come. But you see, the whole life, he says, to serve God and wait for his son. See, there it is. That's endurance. Continue to serve him. Continue to love other people. To continue to give yourself away sacrificially and wait for him to deliver us in whatever ways we need to be. Well, in verses 33 through 34, there's another one of these uh, little chiasms, you know, that, that 
this writer loves to use. Um, and it's this that he says, you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. So that's your affliction. And then the next two phrases have to do with your attachment to those who are afflicted. And then he returns to your personal afflictions. So you were exposed to reproach and affliction. And then notice you were partners. Kononia is the word there. You had fellowship with those so treated. And again, same thing, you had compassion on those in prison. And then back to your own affliction, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So it's you were afflicted, you were attached to those afflicted and attached to those afflicted, and you were afflicted. So whether it came directly to you or became because you loved your brothers and sisters, you went through this terrible struggle. And when it says here that you were, uh, you had publicly, you, you, you suffered publicly exposed to reproach, that word is the word from which we get theater. So it means you were put on a stage for all to see. It was publicly displayed. And the terrible thing that would happen, and it reminds me of those horrible uh, I've seen some live footage, but a lot of movies about when the Jews were so horribly persecuted in Nazi Germany. And it's something like that. Because, for instance, maybe a group of people would be discovered that they're believers, they'd be taken from their homes, and then what would happen to their house? Either the officials would just go ahead and take their stuff too, or they'd just evacuate the house and then looters. You've seen looters just go into a store and just take everything out of there when all uh, law and order has broken down. And that basically was what's happening here. So if, you, if your brother or sister goes to prison, you can lay low so they don't know that you too follow Christ and, left, and, and, and leave your brother or sister to starve or be thirsty or not have clothes enough because they provided nothing in prison. And if you got anything in prison, it's friends from outside to come in. But you come in to help Christians, oh, you too are a Christian. In fact, that's the way it worked there, you know. And, and they thought Christians were especially easy prey because you know the friends are going to come too. They're not going to lay low. So you can just get more and more that way. So in this, in this circumstance, they were held up to ridicule, a public spectacle. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 4, 9. The Roman historian Tacitus called Christianity because they wouldn't do socially and with, with civic things and even sometimes family things that everybody else was doing. And so they were regarded then as not being a real part of the society. And they held back in certain things because they were just sinful. They were open idolatry, and they just couldn't participate in it. But that's why the historian Tacitus called Christianity a deadly disease. And he regarded their refusal to participate in their idolatry as a hatred of all mankind. 
So if you think there's this group of people that just are committed to hate you and they're a disease, then you're in trouble. And that's what's happening uh, to these people or what happened to them at that point. Acts of violence and open ridicule, reproach. We'll later hear about the reproach of Moses. We'll later hear that we're supposed to go outside the city where Christ suffered as a piece of refuse, and we're supposed to go out and identify with him and bear his reproach. So this is, this is going to include us. This does include us. But they, they did that. They bore the reproach of Christ, and they bore the, the results that looters would come in and just like spoils of war, you know, we've got all this free stuff, and they come out, and they're totally disinherited. They have nothing. They have no means to support themselves. And this is one of the reasons why there were offerings taken up all over the Mediterranean basin to support the Jews that were in Palestine because they suffered this way uh, terribly. Now, uh, it's interesting how he emphasizes this word possession. The reason you accepted the plundering of your property, the reason you were even willing to suffer. People say, well, you're going to lose everything. It doesn't matter. Loving my brother or sister is more important than anything I have. More important than anything I have. I will not leave them there alone to suffer. I will help them. But you, he says you were able to do that joyfully, joyfully giving yourself away, joyfully meeting their needs, so happy that the fellowship you had with them. And part of that was you knew you had a better possession and abiding one. And that's the same word used before with losing possessions, but now you've got the possession, singular, right? The only possession, the ultimate possession that you have in Christ Jesus. And he says it's a better possession and it's an everlasting possession. No comparison. It's like a, a man accepting uh, a guy comes by, uh, stops him, pulls him into an alley and takes the 750 bucks out of his wallet. And he's sitting there and the guy walks away and he's happy. Why? Because he had a money belt with $77,000 in it. <laughs> and he didn't touch that. And in that way, no matter what they take from you in this world, they hadn't touched your real treasure. That can't be compared to what you would lose. It can't be compared to everything you might lose in the wake of trying to love your brother or sister. And that's how these people felt. They believed we have an inheritance. It's absolutely sure. It's not make-believe. We have it. And it can't be taken away from us. And it is so great that anything I lose, it doesn't matter at all. And you'll see this word in chapter 11, a better country or a better life, something far better. The city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The homeland. All these kind of statements that we'll run into in chapter 11. So they had compassion. This is uh, the word sympathy, but it's not just sympathy, 
but support and solidarity. They had their back. They were with them. They're entering into suffering with them and loss with them. Reminded of 1 Corinthians 12 where it says, the members have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And how sad that it can be the opposite of that in a church. And we've all known the evil in our own hearts. When one suffers, we feel better about ourselves. One loses, we play off of that. Or one is honored and we're jealous of that and wish it happened to us. We feel threatened by another's gifts or another's strength instead of the fact that we not only rejoice in what they have, but rejoice that we can receive it. We're rough customers to deal with. You know that. To truly, from the heart, suffer with those that suffer and are honored when they are honored. That's a work of God's grace. That's a work of his Holy Spirit that we must continue to pray for as a congregation. And Paul gives it as this is, this is the way we are in Christ Jesus because we're one in Christ. We have the same salvation in Christ, the same spirit in Christ. We're brothers and sisters. And you see that lived out here in Hebrews. My brothers and sisters are suffering in, in the prison. Then I'm with them. And if I lose everything with them, fine. I will not stop thinking about them and acting for them. We love one another as his body. And since this person is a part of Christ's body, uh, Jesus himself in Matthew 25, in talking about this very thing, where he puts the sheep on one side and the sheep are the ones who did visit me in prison. The goats are the ones who lived out their own safety, stayed back. Didn't do anything you think necessarily wrong. I just didn't visit and help them and kept my stuff, you know, and kept living my life. He says, yeah, goats. Because sheep are like me. They're, the sheep follow the shepherd. The shepherd lays down his life and loses everything for the sake of the sheep. And the sheep in following him and having his spirit they do the same thing and lay down their life for one another, right? I mean, because they're like him. They're following him. They have his character. That's what salvation is. To be saved from living for myself, to be saved so that I pour myself out to others like God does for me. I'm redeemed as a human being so that I become what I was meant to be as a human being. Laying myself out for others as God lays himself out for us. This idea of koinonia that he has, of having being partners with those so treated. It says earlier in chapter 2, verse 14, that Jesus partook of our flesh so that he would have solidarity with us. And you see... Our solidarity with one another gives, makes visible Jesus' solidarity with us. It makes visible that he did send Christ. We are his people. We are like him. We suffer for one another as he suffered for us. 
And even this word compassion or sympathy is used in 4.15 to describe Christ's compassion and Christ's sympathy for us. So we're merely reflecting the compassion and symphony, sympathy that Jesus has for us, his people. And of course, in visiting one another, they endangered themselves. But you think about what Jesus did, identifying with us, and he purposely endangered himself, suffering the punishment that we deserve because he identified with us and took us on and became one with us. And so he bore our punishment, though he deserved none of it. And Christians who have the spirit of Christ will do the same because earlier the writer of Hebrews says that he offered himself up through the spirit. The spirit gave him this desire as a human being to give himself away in this radical fashion. And that spirit now dwells in us, reproducing Christ's image in us. And it must be an image of sacrifice for one another. What else, what else would the image be? Just ask that question. If, if it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, which uh, was read the day of the, the deacon's uh, ordination, that we are being conformed to his image from glory to glory, you'd think, well, first thing I know that means is sacrificing ourselves and giving ourselves away to each other because that's his image and that's who Christ is. And I don't, I, I'm not saying these things, I'm saying it in the first place to convict us or confront us with the reality, but I want you to think, wait, that's his salvation. That's what he's going to do for us as a church. It's not something that we can do on our own. This is how he rescues us and makes us new people. And how his spirit transforms us. Even uses the words from glory to glory. So something of the glory of Christ's self-sacrifice by God's grace and by salvation, his powerful salvation, is going to happen in our midst. So we all can look for this and expect it. Expect for Jesus to do what he's promised to do. And it's interesting when in 1 John he talks about this uh, sacrifice that if Jesus gave himself for us, we should give uh, our brothers and sisters what they need. And he says, otherwise, how does the love of God dwell in your heart? Because if it's the love of God, it's going to be a self-sacrificing love. So they believed that they had a treasure. They believed they had an inheritance, a better possession. And so they gave themselves away. And they lived out the words of Christ where he says in Luke 12, a person's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. They really believed that. They really believed it. And so the loss of possessions didn't touch their true life they had in Christ. And they knew actually that the ultimate and devastating loss came for a person who again in Christ's words lays up treasure for himself but is not rich toward God. That person will be destroyed. So 
their thinking was really straight. Now, he's saying these things because they're being tempted to uh, turn away from Christ. But this is how they acted, and he's encouraged them and saying, look what God did in your life. This recalls Christ's words in Matthew 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust can destroy it and thieves can steal it. Put your store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust can't get to it and thieves can't steal it. For where your heart is or where your treasure is, there will your heart be. You can't serve two masters. You'll either hate one and love the other or to be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't love God and money. It's pretty clear which these people loved. They didn't love their stuff. They loved one another. And they cheerfully suffered the loss of those things. So the words of Jesus, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. It's those words, blessed are you. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For they so persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, we get on to verse 35 as we're getting toward the end of this. Don't throw away your confidence, or, or the word boldness. That's the same word, if, you, if you've got your Bibles open, back in verse 19, which says, since we have confidence or boldness to enter into the holy places by the blood of Christ. You see, don't throw away that boldness and confidence that you have to be in the very presence of God uh, through the work of Christ. Don't throw away what Christ has died for. He suffered for you so that you might be forgiven so that you might enter the favor of God and have an everlasting possession with him. Don't throw that away. Don't cast it aside. And this gets to the reclaiming uh, part of this. Lay hold of it. Keep hold of it. Don't throw it away. It'd be like going to the garage and you're going to take all this and... Uh, take it to Goodwill or, or whatever, or it's supposed to go to the dump, and you see there one of your most prized possession that's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. You know? And you've got a big sign on it immediately. Don't throw this away, right? And this is what he's saying here. Don't despise the reward that you have. It's a great reward. Don't despise it. Don't throw away the friendship with, you have with God through Christ's suffering. Don't throw away your sonship. Don't throw away your inheritance. Don't despise the new creation which he won for you, rescuing you from the coming wrath. Don't throw away that reward. Don't lose everything to gain nothing. Because whatever you might get in terms of safety, keeping your stuff, being accepted by others, it'll all be taken away in the final judgment. You may recall Jim Elliott's statement, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to keep what he cannot lose or to gain what he cannot lose. So if you do this, if you, you believers that he's writing to, 
then God and all he has to offer you, all that he's done for you in Christ, offered you in Christ, you're saying it's worth nothing to me. Or at least not as much as security, being safe, being unbothered, having your life the way you want it to, ordered the way you want it to, free of persecution, or sometimes just free of trouble. Free of rejection and ridicule and abuse, being left out, being thought ridiculous, being accepted and honored by the world. These are more important to me than Jesus. But the great, it's interesting, he doesn't say a great reward or the great reward. He just says great reward, which is, is indicating you can't fathom it. You just can't fathom it. It's great reward. And further into reclaim, uh, he talks about the will of God. He talks about enduring and doing the will of God and then receiving what is promised. This recalls in the immediate context, uh, Jesus it's, it's quoted in this very chapter from Psalm 45 that as opposed to all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, Jesus comes along and in the prophecy it says, a body you have prepared for me. Interesting. For thinking about the incarnation, about God the Son becoming man. A body you have prepared for me, a body in which I might do your will as a human being a body in which I might suffer doing your will as a human being. It's in a human body representing his people, he gave himself up in perfect obedience to his father. He beautifully exhibited the father's character in his self-sacrificing love. So you see, endurance is basically just doing the will of God. Loving people, loving God, continue to give yourself up for him. And isn't it beautiful that Christ regarded his body as the gift of God, prepared as the instrument for accomplishing the divine will. And we can see our bodies that way. You've given us these bodies, these wonderful bodies, limited though they are, in order that we might do your will with them. You've given us an instrument to please you with, to use for your glory, to accomplish your will and your mission in this world. That's how precious our bodies are. He's given us that gift. And I love how Peter puts it in chapter 4, verse 19. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That, that's beautiful. You're suffering. You're undergoing loss. Maybe property. Maybe imprisonment. Maybe rejection. Ridicule. Ultimately death. And in the midst of it, what's the focus? Just continue to do good. Continue to give myself away. Nobody can stop you from doing that. Nobody can stop you from continuing to love other people. In that respect, brother, sister, you're invincible, untouchable. 
It doesn't matter. Just keep entrusting yourself to a faithful creator and do good. Well, these last verses, just, just to mention this idea of shrinking back, he, he shifts the quote from Habakkuk so that another chiasm is formed here so that uh, notice faith in verse 38, my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure. We're not those who shrink back and then he ends back with faith. So faith, shrinking, shrinking faith. And the idea of shrinking is sobering because if we shrink back, we're destroyed. And that's counterintuitive. You shrink back to protect yourself, right? You shrink back so that you're not hurt. You don't lose. You don't have your stuff taken. You don't have your life taken. You're not in prison. But then you're destroyed. So you move forward entrusting yourself to him, believing trusting in his goodness and his purpose. It's interesting that the Hebrew there where it says shrink back is translated into the Greek. The Hebrew means puffed up, self-exalted. Why do I shrink back? Because I'm more important than God. And protecting my stuff in me is more important than his will. I shrink back, not only because of fear, but pride and self-importance. And brothers and sisters, let's not have what I call fine print in our hearts, <laughs> like an advertisement that at the end tells you the real story. And the real story to God is, yes, I give myself to you, but I've got limits. And if you cross this line or that line or you cause me to lose this thing or that thing, fine print here, I'm out. I'll serve you so far. In other words, we're not like the parable where it says he found a treasure in a field and he sold everything to have that treasure. That's how precious Jesus is to us. We'll lose everything for him and his people. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, thank you that you make us into these kinds of people. You so save us and rescue us from ourselves. As Paul even put it, he died so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. Oh, Lord, we would pray and expect for you to bring that salvation, the one and only salvation, to us, to this church, to the individuals here, so that, Lord, truly it will continue to spill out and grow and flourish that we live for Christ and not for ourselves.